Hello and welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm your host, Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about relations between Iran and countries of the GCC, the different policies that each of these countries have taken towards Iran over the years, from Saudi Arabia and the UAE all the way to Qatar and Oman. We also talk about the impacts of U.S. policy towards the region and specifically the Abraham Accords on Iran's relations with its Arab neighbors. And finally, we'll take a look at how Russia's attack on Ukraine has impacted the region and the countries of the GCC. My guest today is Giorgio Cafiero, the CEO of Gulf State Analytics, a Washington-based geopolitical risk consultancy. He's also an adjunct fellow at the American Security Project and a regular contributor to Al Jazeera English, The New Arab, and Amwaj Media. Giorgio, welcome to the Iran Podcast. Thank you. Good to be with you. It's great to have you. Let's talk about, um, obviously, we want to talk about Iran's relations with the GCC countries, um, the rivalry and the uh, alliances in the region. But let's start from the latest. Um, uh, if you can give us sort of a, a lay of the land, the landscape of what the current relationships look like between Iran and the major countries in that area? Well, obviously, for many decades, uh, most of the countries in the Gulf Cooperation Council have seen a threat from Iran. This perception of Iran posing a threat predates the Islamic Revolution of 1979, when the Shah was in power Uh, The monarchies on the Arabian Peninsula were very worried about his ambitions, always seeing Iran as a much larger uh, neighbor to the north that did not always respect the sovereign rights of some of Iran's much smaller Arab neighbors. But since the 1979 revolution, that threat perception intensified very much, viewing the Islamic Republic as a, a predatory actor in the region. Uh, You know, the revolution was based on certain ideals and certain agendas that went far beyond Iran's borders. The um, message from Ayatollah Khomeini was that monarchies were un-Islamic and that sort of rhetoric combined with support that Iran gave to a variety of uh, Shia, mostly Shia groups inside certain Arab countries led to uh, states in the GCC believing that Iran was trying to destabilize their countries. Obviously, um, the six GCC states, however, have very different views of Iran and the extent to which they see Iran as a threat varies in their strategies for dealing with this perceived threat vary from one GCC state to another. And this has obviously been the case for decades, even really going back to the period immediately after the Iranian revolution, I would say that there's an important divide in the GCC. On one hand, you have Saudi Arabia and UAE and Bahrain, which view Iran as a very serious threat, and they tend to support US-led efforts and sort of pan-Arab efforts to counter Iran quite aggressively. Then you have the three so-called dovish states in the GCC, Kuwait, Qatar, and Oman, which certainly believe that the ways to decrease tensions in the Gulf region require more Iranian Arab engagement. And these countries also have some threat perceptions of Saudi Arabia in their views that Saudi Arabia does not always respect the sovereign rights of some of the smaller member states of the GCC. And so often they have sort of tried to balance Iran and Saudi Arabia off each other. Mm -hmm. Despite these divisions in the GCC, there is an overall trend toward more diplomacy toward Tehran. This has definitely picked up since Trump left the White House and the Biden presidency began. The view from countries such as Saudi Arabia, as well as the leadership in Abu Dhabi, is that the Americans are easing pressure on Iran. These countries are taking very seriously the possibility of the JCPOA 
being revived at some point, possibly not too far down the road. And they are trying to find ways to engage the Iranians and to de-escalate tension in the region and to possibly find a way to sort of share the neighborhood with Iran. Mm -hmm. Of course, what the outcome of these efforts, these diplomatic efforts will be, we don't know. But there is pretty much uh, a general agreement throughout the GCC that the right thing to do is to at least open a dialogue with Iran and see what it can lead to. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad you um, brought up that issue because I wanted to ask you more specifically about Saudi Arabia and then obviously by extension UAE, which are the two major powers and also closest in foreign policy um, in some ways, at least their view towards Iran. But specifically, let's first talk about Saudi Arabia um, as you mentioned, with the new administration here in Washington, the uh, Democratic administration, which has a different view and outlook towards the region, both its partners and rivals uh, when compared to the Trump era. And then also with a change of administration in Tehran uh, last June, there was a, a change of presidency. There's a new hardline administration in Tehran with President Raisi. Um, a new foreign minister who's more of an Arab world expert and uh, has more of uh, focus and um, uh, interest in the region um, if you compare to the previous um, administration. Let's talk about the new engagement, the new fairly recent Iran-Saudi engagements. I believe there have been at least six rounds of talks um, with Iraq actually being an important broker, um, some of these uh, meetings were happening in Baghdad. Um, they did start before this current administration came into power in Tehran. And um, it seems like there is, as you said, an interest on both sides uh, in sort of um, moving towards an attitude of sharing the neighborhood. Talk about this uh, Iran-Saudi uh, more recent um, engagement and how um, you think it's unfolded so far and where it's leading? Because we also don't hear um, great expectations for for the results of them. But nevertheless, the engagement has been uh, new and it's significant. Well, yes. Beginning in April 2021, Baghdad began hosting these direct talks between the Saudis and Iranians. And from my perspective, this is very positive. I think stability in the Middle East and especially in the Gulf requires the dialogue between Riyadh and Tehran. At the same time, we need to be realistic and understand that Saudi Arabia and Iran do see a huge threat represented by the other. These two governments are opposing stakeholders in so many conflicts in the region. They look at the Middle East very, very differently. So I think it's important for people to not expect major breakthroughs to happen very quickly and to understand that progress can come very slowly and there can also be setbacks. At the same time, I think it's important to realize that the Saudi and the Iranian governments are talking to each other for some different reasons. Mm -hmm. I think from the Saudi side, there's all this uncertainty about the nuclear negotiations in Vienna. Maybe the JCPOA will be reconstituted. Maybe it won't. In the event that there is a revival of the 2015 nuclear deal, there are concerns in Riyadh that a lifting of sanctions on Iran will result in Tehran being more confident and pursuing its regional foreign policy agenda more aggressively doing things that leave the Saudis feeling more insecure. By the same token, if the talks fail to revive the nuclear accord, there's a real risk of brinkmanship either between U.S. and Iran or Israel and Iran spiraling out of control in ways that would pose an enormous threat to Saudi Arabia. So irrespective of the outcome of the nuclear talks in Vienna, the Saudis want to try to engage the Iranians in some ways that can sort of guarantee that the kingdom does not get caught up in the crossfire, regardless of how the talks pan out. From the Iranian side, 
with the Raisi administration in power, this Iranian administration is pursuing the goal of improving Iran's relations with neighboring countries. The Iranian leadership also realizes that the talks in Vienna might not lead to a revival of the JCPOA, and Iran is pursuing much more of a look east foreign policy, trying to build on Iran's partnerships with countries such as China, Russia, countries in Central Asia, such as Tajikistan, and also the member states of the GCC. The view from Tehran is that if the Islamic Republic can improve its relationships with GCC countries, they, this can serve to decrease the extent to which Iran is an isolated country. So again, both uh, the Saudis and Iranians have wanted these uh, direct talks to take place. And the fact that they've made it through numerous rounds speaks to the point that both the Saudi and Iranian governments see it in their interest to continue these talks in Iraq. But again, they're coming to these talks for different reasons. In my view, what's going to be a, an indicator of real progress has to do with the situation in Yemen and also this question about whether or not the embassies, which closed in January 2016, might reopen. Also, we need to see if some higher ranking officials between these countries will meet face to face. Again, in my opinion, those will be some of the real indicators that there is some tangible progress that the two sides are achieving in this dialogue. Mm -hmm. And um, it, I agree with you. I, I believe the only um, uh, breakthrough that we've seen, not a big breakthrough, but sort of an outcome is the reopening of a representative office for Iran at the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which is based in Saudi Arabia and Jeddah. And then at some point this April, Iran suspended the talks, uh, sort of protesting Saudi Arabia's execution of a few dozen um, dissidents in a day, mostly from the Shia minority um in in the kingdom so there's there's different points of contention between the two sides but also the yemen uh, the war in yemen and iran's close ties and support and backing of the houthis it's an is an issue for saudi arabia and also for the uae for united arab emirates and i want to sort of shift to that country and um, talk about um, their view in policy towards Iran specifically, because from a distance, it seems like they're very much in line with Saudi Arabia when it comes to Iran. But at the same time, there's so many nuances and differences in how the UAE has approached Iran over the years. There's much more direct trade between uh, UAE and Iran. Dubai is essentially a major trade hub for Iran in the region, or has been um, at different points. And uh, it seems like the uh, Emiratis have more of a moderate um, view and policy towards Iran. Talk about their current status in light of the change of administration in Washington, the emergence of the hardliners in Tehran, um, and also the direct engagement between Tehran and Riyadh and how uh, Abu Dhabi basically is viewing all of this. Since 2014, Mohammed bin Zayed has been the de facto ruler of the UAE. And last month, with the passing of Sheikh Khalifa, Mohammed bin Zayed, commonly known as MBZ, became the president of the UAE and the ruler of Abu Dhabi, making him the official ruler of the United Arab Emirates. He sees Iran as a huge threat, and mm -hmm. he has pursued a very security-first approach to foreign policy. Again, it, at the very fundamental level, he sees the Islamic Republic and everything that it stands for as a grave menace to GCC countries. At the same time, MBZ is a very shrewd foreign policy decision maker who thinks very strategically. It's my opinion that with MBZ at the helm, UAE has been much more shrewd than Saudi Arabia when it comes to dealing with what these countries perceive to be a huge threat represented by the Iranian regime. 
Um, and as you do point out, the relationship that Iran has with the UAE is very different from the relationship that it has with Saudi Arabia, whereas there is basically no real economic relationship between Iran and Saudi Arabia. There's a very vibrant economic relationship between the UAE, namely Dubai and Iran. There is a history of Iranians doing business in Dubai. There are also many Emiratis with Persian roots in the country. And so these sort of historical dynamics factor into the UAE's relationship with Iran. UAE is also a much smaller country than Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. And as we saw with the Houthi attacks that targeted Abu Dhabi in January of this year, the UAE is very vulnerable to um, Iran-backed actors in Yemen and elsewhere in the region. For geographic reasons that are obvious to anyone who looks at a map, the UAE does not have the strategic depth that Saudi Arabia does. And what we saw even when Trump was president was that the UAE began to try to engage the Iranians diplomatically. Uh, this was something that really uh, picked up some momentum in 2019. So quite a while before the Saudis and Iranians entered into their direct talks in Baghdad, which wasn't until April 2021, the UAE is understood uh, they understood that when Trump was president, that maximum pressure could certainly spiral out of control and lead to an armed conflict in the Gulf. And under those circumstances, the UAE would be incredibly vulnerable. When you look at just sort of the economic model of Dubai, if there were to ever be uh, rockets or drones that would hit that emirate, it would result in many um, expats leaving the country at once. This is all to say that Beginning in the, the Trump years, the UAE sort of began uh, what I saw as kind of a hedging approach to Iran mm -hmm. just to make sure that if the U.S. foreign policy failed to sort of pressure Iran into making all these concessions and Iran would continue to act very boldly in the region, the leadership in Abu Dhabi wanted to make sure that the UAE would not become a target of Iran's at any point. Then, of course, in November 2020, Biden won the presidential election and it became clear to countries in the GCC that um, at least to some extent, maybe not to the extent that some people uh, had expected, but there'd be some um, lessening of U.S. pressure on Iran and a push to revive the JCPOA even though um, as of now, that obviously hasn't been the outcome. Nonetheless, the change in American leadership, I think has also been a factor contributing to the UAE's desire to sort of decrease tensions with Iran. This is not to say that the fundamental threat perceptions that Abu Dhabi has of Iran have changed, but there has in recent years been a shift in UAE's strategies and tactics for dealing with Iran. And this needs to be seen within a grander context of the UAE uh, making some adjustments in his foreign policy, not only in relation to Iran, but also in relation to Qatar and Turkey. Those are two countries the UAE saw as being uh, rivals of Abu Dhabi. And the UAE is trying to move away from a foreign policy that's very hawkish um, and confrontational towards states that uh, represent perceived threats to the UAE and to try to focus more on economic investment opportunities. And so I think it's important to sort of see a little bit of a thaw in the Abu Dhabi-Tehran relationship within that greater context as well. Mm -hmm. How significant is the war in Yemen for Abu Dhabi? Because for Saudi Arabia, we know it's one of the major issues when it comes to Iran. But how much is uh, the UAE, uh, how much significance are they putting on this issue? The situation in Yemen is very important to the UAE. It's important to realize, though, that the UAE and Saudi Arabia have had divergent interests in relation to this conflict. Mm -hmm. So back in March 2015, Saudi Arabia and the UAE were the two leading actors in the Arab military coalition that sought to 
uh, defeat the Iranian-backed Houthi rebellion. However, as I mentioned earlier, the UAE, um, the UAE's leadership thinks very strategically, and the UAE, to its credit, does a very good job of adapting its foreign policy and making shifts very quickly. So when the UAE realized that the military campaign against the Houthis was turning into a total disaster, it was not succeeding in terms of achieving the Arab coalition's goals, and it was also doing a lot to severely damage the Saudi kingdom's reputation internationally, the UAE made a huge shift. And for the most part, even though the UAE has always been officially opposed to the Houthis, the UAE stopped focusing on the situation in northern Yemen and started pursuing its sort of grander set of geostrategic goals vis-a-vis -vis southern Yemen, the, the ports of the Yemeni coast, and by extension, this pertained to UAE's interests throughout uh, Horn of Africa and also really the rest of Africa and what I would sort of describe as an Emirati maritime empire. And the UAE gave a lot of support to factions in Southern Yemen, chiefly the Southern Transitional Council, which did create a fair amount of friction between Abu Dhabi and Riyadh mindful of the fact that Saudi Arabia for years was supporting the government led by President Hadi, which, you know, was a government that sought to govern all of Yemen. So UAE supporting Southern secessionists you know, for understandable reasons uh, created quite a bit of division within the, the grander Arab coalition. Now, fast forward to January 2022, the Houthis decided to fire missiles and drones at Abu Dhabi, and that has definitely contributed to the UAE starting to see uh, the threat posed by the Houthis as not just being so much a problem for Saudi Arabia, but also uh, a very serious concern for the Emiratis as well. Uh, you know, the UAE uh, has uh, an economy that really depends on the country being very peaceful, very stable, the Emiratis are not used to drones and missiles firing into their country. So when those attacks took place in January, it was extremely alarming to the leadership in Abu Dhabi. And so what we've seen this year uh, has been an effort on the part of UAE and Saudi Arabia to sort of consolidate an anti-Houthi front. Of course, there's been a truce in Yemen since early April that fortunately was just extended very recently. So I think this can give everyone a sense of hope that maybe the war in Yemen can begin to wind down and all of these countries can begin to start to feel more secure. And hopefully uh, there's a big hope that Yemen's peace can finally be restored after all these years of extremely gruesome warfare. Mm -hmm. um, and so while we speak of the war in Yemen, there's also another ongoing uh, war in the region in Syria. And we also know that's another essentially battleground where Iran and some of its Arab neighbors are um, in positioned on the op uh, opposite sides. Talk about that war and specifically, again, I guess, Saudi Arabia and UAE are major stakeholders. And we've also seen new developments of Assad, uh, Bashar Assad, essentially being welcomed back in certain Arab capitals, including in the UAE. So um, talk about how that war or essentially the situation in Syria and um, Assad's rehabilitation is playing out in some of these countries. So when the Syrian crisis broke out in 2011, the anti-Assad forces that were trying to topple the Syrian government received a tremendous amount of support from GCC states, um, mostly Saudi Arabia and Qatar. However, as we know, by 2015, the Russians intens intensified their direct military intervention Iran also played a huge role as an outside actor that was supporting the Assad government and largely due to support from Syria's allies, 
the anti-Assad groups failed to topple the government. And so basically from about 2015 to 2016 onwards, the GCC states basically came to terms with the fact that Assad is not going to fall from power. The Russians wanted to change facts on the ground to sort of cajole the GCC states into accepting the reality of Assad staying in his position of power in Damascus. However, GCC states have not been on the same page when it comes to this question about how to deal with Assad in the current period. The UAE on one side has the position that Assad's regime needs to be seen again as 100% legitimate and that Assad and his government need to be brought back into the Arab League and into the Arab region's diplomatic fold. And from the Emirati perspective, this is just about being realistic, being pragmatic and accepting reality. Saudi Arabia and Qatar, although they're not actively supporting groups fighting the Assad government, they see things differently than Abu Dhabi does. They believe that the actions taken by the Syrian regime over the past 11 years have cost Assad his legitimacy, and they do not believe that Assad as an Arab leader should be rehabilitated. So these two countries continue to not have diplomatic relations with Syria. The UAE is definitely the country that is trying to drive Arab efforts to sort of shore up the Assad regime and to support Syria in its reconstruction and redevelopment. Of course, there are US-imposed sanctions as well as secondary sanctions on Syria that make it so the UAE cannot make huge investments, uh, huge investments in Syria. But outside of the economic realm, the UAE is uh, trying to uh, take steps which are very symbolic uh, to show support for efforts to rehabilitate Assad. And as you mentioned, in March 2022, Assad himself came to Abu Dhabi and Dubai. This followed a breakthrough in Emirati-Syrian relations in December 2018 when there was official reconciliation and the UAE reopened its diplomatic mission inside Syria. I think it's important for us to see this reconciliation between the UAE and Syria within the context of the UAE becoming a lot more independent and autonomous from the United States. At a time in which US hegemony is on the decline in the Middle East, UAE is adapting to a more multipolar world. And in certain cases, with Syria being an example, what we're seeing from Abu Dhabi is a foreign policy that aligns much more with Russia and China than with the West. The UAE doesn't think that efforts to continually isolate Assad's government to the maximum extent possible will serve Emirati interests. They believe that trying to rebuild relations with Assad's government is in the UAE's interest, and they're making it very clear to the United States that they do not agree with Washington's agenda in Syria, and they're not afraid to uh, go their own way, even if that is something that does upset officials here in Washington. Mm -hmm. Let's um, talk about Qatar, because we know um, Qatar is sort of in a different position, kind of in between, I see Qatar, not so much of a pro-Iran member of the GCC, but also not very much in line with the more dominant Saudi UAE and by extension Bahrain policies. There was um, a major uh, rift between these countries, essentially a blockade of Qatar over three years dispute. Um, in a way, uh, the, the Saudi UAE Bahrain um, opposing what they saw as Qatar's drift towards Iran and uh, the Doha-Tehran relations sort of strengthened even during those years of the blockade. Now, that blockade is officially over, and uh, the countries have sort of 
um, had summits trying to bring the uh, GCC members together. But talk about Qatar's uh, special position. Um, it's a powerful country. Uh, we're going to talk about Oman later, but I believe Qatar is more sort of a powerful country, has very close ties with the West, with the U.S., one of the major bases of uh, U.S. forces in the region, and uh, recently also has been trying to broker or sort of mediate between Tehran and Washington. So talk about all of that uh, with the blockade, the disputes with the Saudi UAE, and now sort of the um, re-engagement and also Qatar's position towards Iran. Well, in terms of Qatar's relationship with Iran, I think the two countries have long approached each other very pragmatically. The two countries share ownership of the largest gas field in the world. And this has been a factor that has always given Doha an incentive to try to help global powers deal with the Iranian nuclear file in a way that does not result in an armed conflict breaking out in the Gulf. If that were to ever be an outcome of uh, nuclear brinkmanship, the Qatar economy would suffer greatly. Qatar has always believed that the JCPOA, for all its shortcomings and all its flaws, is by far the best and really the only way to overcome tensions between the West, Israel, and Arab states on one side and Iran on the other. Notably, uh, when the JCPOA passed in 2015, Qatar very much welcomed that development. When Trump unilaterally pulled the U.S. out of the accord in May 2018, Qatar did not join Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Israel in welcoming that move. Uh, from Doha's perspective, that was very problematic when the Trump administration uh, made that decision. Today, Qatar is trying to help the U.S. and Iran find a middle ground so that the JCPOA can be revived. Qatar's only way to export its gas goes through the Strait of Hormuz, it's not a country that has alternative routes. So again, the possibility of nuclear brinkmanship escalating into a conflict, an armed conflict, would be very disastrous from the standpoint of Qatar's security and economic interests. Now, in sort of a, a grander geopolitical context, we need to realize that Qatar is a very small country geographically in between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So there has long been a strategy on Doha's part to sort of balance these two countries off each other. The Qataris would not want to align with Saudi Arabia 100% of the time against Iran. At the same time, Doha shares Riyadh's position that Iran should not be in a position to totally dominate the Middle East. So we've seen over the years and really over the decades cases where Doha sort of aligns with Saudi Arabia against Iran. Uh, when it came to the Syrian crisis, that was the case. When it came to the, uh, well, back in March 2015, Qatar was actually a member of the Saudi-led Arab coalition fighting the Houthis. But at the same time, Qatar has had a much warmer relationship with Iran and doesn't always sign up for uh, foreign policy moves the Saudis are pushing to counter Iran. So when the blockade of Qatar began in the middle of 2017, a narrative that came out of Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi was that Qatar was not loyal to its fellow GCC states and that Qatar was very willing to work with the Iranians in ways that they said were entirely unacceptable for any country that wants to be a GCC member in good standing. So there were also many other issues that led to some of these Arab countries blockading Qatar, such as the fact that Qatar has uh, had for years maintained a rather Muslim Brotherhood friendly foreign policy that Al Jazeera was out of Qatar. And of course, Al Jazeera has been a network that's given a platform to many voices who've criticized Saudi Arabia and the UAE. 
So there have been a, a there were a host of issues that led to these Arab countries believing they had to take this action against Qatar. But the perceptions of Qatar being too friendly to Iran was one of the factors in play. Now, interestingly, a consequence of the blockade of Qatar was that it pushed Doha to become closer to Tehran. So back in uh, January 2016, Doha took diplomatic action against Iran uh, at the time in which there was that crisis in Saudi-Iranian relations following the execution of Sheikh Nimr and then the violence that was waged against the Saudi diplomatic missions in Iran. But then after the um, blockade began, shortly after the blockade began, uh, Qatar sent its ambassador back to Tehran and we saw um, and we've seen even after the blockade was lifted in January 2021, that Qatar is still interested in trying to deepen its relations with Iran across a whole host of uh, domains, whether we're talking about um, tourism or other sectors as well. The Qataris and Iranians are trying to build on their relationship. And I think that's definitely sort of a long term effect of the blockade. In my opinion, this was all predictable. Uh, you know, the foreign neighbors, immediate neighbors, whether by land or by sea that Qatar has are Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Iran. So when three out of four of those partners decided to cut off diplomatic and economic relations with Qatar, it was Iran that really gave Qatar a lifeline. And it was through, you know, thanks to Iranian airspace and Iranian ports, that the Qataris were successful in terms of weathering the blockade. And I think this is something that the Qataris are going to remember for a long time. And that experience of the blockade is going to shape uh, Qatari perceptions of Iran as well as their Arab, Arab neighbors for many years to come. So I think we can say that in many ways, Iran was a big beneficiary of the blockade of Qatar because it did so much to increase Iran's value to Doha. And uh, we also know that Qatar, I mean, the emir himself and uh, essentially the country's foreign policy apparatus has been trying to mediate between Tehran and Washington recently. There was a very interesting and strong presence by officials from both countries at the Doha Forum. Both you and I were recently at the Doha Forum in Qatar. Um, we saw the on the second day of a two-day conference, basically the top two uh, speakers were a senior official or advisor uh, to the to Iran's supreme leader from Iran, Kamal Kharazi, and then immediately followed by Rob Malley, which is the U.S. Special Envoy, um, for Iran, and they were both interviewed by the same uh, CNN journalist anchor, and sort of was a, con a, a, a one event uh, back to back when they spoke about engagement and diplomacy. And we also know there have been uh, there's been shuttle diplomacy between Tehran and Doha, and it seems like Qatar wants to step in to sort of mediate between the two sides. But then at the same time, and this is where I kind of want to segue use as a segue to Oman, it, uh, it's not been occupying that space as a trusted mediator as much as Oman has. So if you want to uh, sort of compare the two, talk about Qatar and Oman and maybe uh, shift to uh, Oman a little more of how this uh, mediation is something that Qatar is, is trying and looking forward to and it's something that Oman has been successful in doing between Tehran and Iran and the West in general, but mainly Iran and the U.S. and also recently the U.K. Well, Oman and Qatar definitely share a view that reviving the G JCPOA would be in the interest of not only, you know, the Middle East, but also from the standpoint of global security. They believe that there's no realistic alternative to the JCPOA that is desirable. They, you know, share a view that they can use their good relationships that they have with both the U.S. and Iran to try to help the two countries come closer 
to, um, you know, some sort of a new understanding and to try to help the two countries find ways to avoid any sort of military confrontation. Of course, if nuclear brinkmanship would ever result in a war, uh, the Omanis as well as the Qataris would stand to lose uh, in so many ways. And within that context, it was the Omanis who began hosting uh, secret talks between officials from the Obama administration and the Iranians that later led to the JCPOA being passed in 2015. Recently, Oman's top diplomat uh, did an interview and he was asked if the Omanis are currently hosting any secret talks. And he said that he was not going to confirm that, but he did state that Oman is always happy to try to do something that can facilitate peace between the United States and Iran. I think it's really important for your listeners to understand that Oman and Iran have a very special relationship. Back when the Shah was in power, the Omani government was facing a rebellion in the Dofar region. This was a, a communist revolt that led to a very bloody conflict in Oman during the 1960s and 1970s. And the Shah supported the Sultan of Oman. And there were Iranian forces that came to Oman and actually died uh, helping the Omani government win in that conflict. So the Omanis, when you talk to them today about Iran, they're often very emotional. And this is because they remember the sacrifices that Iran made to help Oman out when it was when um, the Sultanate was facing this existential threat uh, represented by the Marxist rebels during the 1960s and 1970s. When the revolution of 1979 took place, Oman did not want to fundamentally change its relationship with Iran. Oman sees, Ira Oman sees Iran as its permanent neighbor and between Omanis and Iranians, there are ancient relations. And Oman understands that Iran is a permanent neighbor. So regardless of what kind of government is in power in Tehran, Oman has always wanted to maintain uh, warm ties with that government, irrespective of uh, the nature of whatever regime is in power. So when the Iran-Iraq war was raging in the 1980s, Oman was the one GCC state that stayed neutral in that conflict. And likewise, that is something that the Iranians will always remember. When Iran was very isolated in the Iran-Iraq war and countries like Saudi Arabia were giving a tremendous amount of support to Saddam Hussein, Oman was not a part of that effort to, um, to back Baghdad. What Oman did during that conflict was actually host ceasefires between the Iranians and Iraqis. And I think we can say that Oman is the GCC country that has the warmest relationship with Iran. None of this is to say that Muscat supports some of the more aggressive aspects of Iranian foreign policy. Oman um, doesn't believe that Iran should be allowed to destabilize Arab countries. But Oman also recognizes that Iran is a regional power and that it has its own security interests that need to be taken into account and respected by Arab countries. Likewise, Oman at times has seen the UAE and Saudi Arabia as, if I may say so, somewhat difficult neighbors. And at times the Omanis have feared that the Saudis and Emiratis may not always respect Oman's sovereign rights. So Oman has had its own interests in uh, maintaining a close relationship with Iran to sort of balance Oman. And balance is always key to Oman's foreign policy. The Omanis like to avoid aligning with one geopolitical bloc against another. For example, when the Saudi-led military coalition got um, involved directly in Yemen in March 2015. Oman was the only GCC state 
that did not involve itself in that coalition. It was the only GCC state that was neutral in the Yemen conflict at that time, and it has maintained its neutrality in Yemen ever since. So Oman sees itself at the same time as being very responsible for trying to help other countries in the Middle East achieve peace. And so Muscat, to its credit, has often been quite successful in terms of using its neutrality to bring different parties together. And at times when it's not been possible for the Americans and Iranians to have uh, direct talks either in Washington or Tehran, Muscat has made itself sort of a, a neutral ground for those talks to take place. And this is not only just between the US and Iran, but also between UK and Iran, and sometimes between different Arab countries and Iran. So Oman has definitely played a very important role when it comes to sort of helping Iran engage some countries at times when direct engagement between Iran and those other countries would not be possible due to political factors. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Just recently, um, Oman helped Iran and the UK um, essentially broker a deal when um, Iran released two dual national prisoners um, who physically flew out of Iran on an Omani uh, uh, airplane and um, the UK um, repaid an old debt to Iran also with help um, from Oman. And then in the past, also Oman has helped uh, with prisoner swaps between Tehran and Washington, most famously with the case of um, U.S. hikers that were uh, arrested in prison in Iran. Um, let's, uh, Georgia, talk about the Abraham Accords, because even though it doesn't really have to do with Iran, it also has a lot to do with Iran. The recent normalization of ties between um, some Arab countries and Israel. Um, as you and I were talking, obviously, Egypt is one Arab country which has had or normalized or has had ties with Israel for uh, a longer time. But in 2020, under the Trump administration, uh, the Abraham Accords brought the normalization between Israel and uh, UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco. And uh, just now we see the Biden administration doing some uh, new outreach with the Saudi government, um, specifically Mohammed bin Salman, known as MBS, the uh, Saudi prince. And just, uh, I believe today, Secretary of State Blinken said that uh, Saudi Arabia is a critical partner in dealing with extremism in the region and challenges posed by Iran. And um, he ho he expressed hope that Saudi Arabia would help with the expansion of the Abraham Accords, which seems like it's also important and significant for this administration, the Biden administration. Talk about all of this. Um, the Abraham Accords in general, how those countries normalize. And also, I want to specifically ask you if you think Saudi Arabia will join the Abraham Accords. Well, yes, obviously, any U.S. administration, quite frankly, would welcome normalization deals between literally any Arab country and Israel. Decreasing Israel's Diplomatic isolation in the Arab region is something that Washington perceives to be very much in U.S. national interests. So it's absolutely no surprise that the Abraham Accords, sort of a hallmark of the Trump foreign policy, is something that the current administration definitely wants to build on. And Blinken and other officials in uh, Biden's team have made it very clear that they would like to see more countries enter the Abraham Accords when we want to discuss uh, motivations that the UAE had for entering the Abraham Accords, there's no doubt that Iran is a factor. I personally think, though, that sometimes analysts overstate the extent to which Iran is a factor. Mm -hmm. uh, I would just want to say it's certainly not the only factor, but it definitely was an important one. Sure, um, I agree with you, yeah. Yeah, I think Abu Dhabi and Tel Aviv both have perceptions that the U.S. is withdrawing from the Middle East. 
whether this is a reality or a perception might be a conversation for another time. But nonetheless, these are real perceptions that Israeli and Emirati officials have. And they are both trying to move toward a new security axis in the Middle East um, in for a future in which the U.S. is much less involved. And there are many threat perceptions that the UAE and Israel share and Iran is one among several of them. Mm -hmm. Whether we're talking about the Houthis down in Yemen, Hezbollah in Lebanon, or Iranian-backed Shia militias that are in Iraq or Syria, UAE and Israel see all of these actors and Iran being a huge threat. So the two countries are definitely in the same boat and they want to try to increase their collaboration uh, with the aim of sort of countering Iran in ways that are more autonomous from the United States. Now, to be sure, Saudi Arabia obviously is in the same boat too when it comes to viewing Iran as a dangerous actor in the Middle East. And this has definitely led to a significant amount of tacit cooperation between Saudi Arabia and Israel. So there's never been an official diplomatic relationship between Riyadh and Tel Aviv. But again, they've very closely engaged each other and worked under the table to advance interests that they share in relation to um, this quest to sort of counter or weaken Iran. To get to your question about whether or not I think Saudi Arabia will join the Abraham Accords, I am of the opinion that we should not expect this. Mm -hmm. I think the Saudi-Israeli relationship is going to grow, but I think it's going to continue to be a tacit partnership. I think that Saudi Arabia is certainly a part of this trend toward normalization, and we're going to see Saudi Arabia taking many steps toward normalizing relations with Israel to a point where there's basically a de facto normalized relationship between these two countries. But I don't think the Saudis would officially or formally enter the Abraham Accords. Why do I think this? I just think it would be too risky for the Saudi leadership. You know, the, since the 1980s, the king of Saudi Arabia has officially been the custodian of two holy mosques. Mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia, plays a very important role in the wider Arab region, in the wider Islamic world. For Saudi Arabia to essentially, uh, you know, abandon the Arab Peace Initiative, which itself was a Saudi initiative um, set forth two decades ago, and to just normalize diplomatic relations with Israel, irrespective of the plight of the Palestinians, would anger many people inside Saudi Arabia and outside Saudi Arabia in ways that would just be very risky to the Saudi leadership. I think Iran could exploit any Saudi entry into the Abraham Accords in ways that would worry the leadership in Riyadh. You know, ever since 1979, the Islamic Republic has pushed this narrative that the Al Saud family is made up of a bunch of Western puppets and that the Saudi royal family is totally unfit to lead the Islamic world. Sure, we can say Iran uh, very cynically uses the Palestinian issue to its advantage, but nonetheless, I think that narrative would be very much bolstered if Saudi Arabia were to officially enter the Abraham Accords, effectively abandoning the Palestinians and allow the Israelis to open some embassy in Riyadh. At the same time, you know, many Saudis would have a big problem with that. And, you know, I'm not just talking about other members of the royal family who are definitely not ready for a normalization with Israel, but also many just average citizens in Saudi Arabia. I think there's even reason to think that Saudi Arabia's government joining the Abraham Accords could result in street protests in Saudi Arabia at a time when... Saudis are getting ready for Mohammed bin Salman to become the next king of Saudi Arabia. These are not issues that the Saudi leadership wants to have to deal with. Um, 
So I, I just think the Saudi view is that it's best to collaborate with Israel, to engage the Israelis and to align with them, but to do it in ways that are tacit and not formal. And I just want to stress that Saudi Arabia is a very, very different country from the UAE. The population of Saudi Arabia, the geography of the kingdom are much larger than that of the UAE. It's much easier for the Emirati leadership to keep a lid on any dissent that might come up. In Saudi Arabia, it could be much more challenging for the government to contain any sort of negative fallout that results from Saudi Arabia signing a diplomatic deal with Israel. Having said all of that, I think Mohammed bin Salman would like to normalize diplomatic relations with Israel. I think he um, is the kind of leader who believes that it would be good for Saudi Arabia. But again, due to these factors I've just raised, I just have a really difficult time imagining Saudi Arabia doing that, even if this is something the Biden administration would very much like to see happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, Georgia... I finally want to talk about the war in Ukraine and how it's impacted uh, the Middle East, specifically on these topics that we're talking. We know that U.S. allies in the region, starting from Israel, the closest U.S. ally in the Middle East, and also the GCC countries, major Arab powers, didn't really take a strong position, as the U.S. expected, against Russia's attack on Ukraine. Uh, it even is portrayed in their votes at the UN, mostly negative against Russia. Um, the, uh, negative meaning uh, uh, opposing uh, the attack or abstaining from votes. And there's also another major factor in US calculation, which is the increase in oil prices that also has very much to do with that war and the reluctance from, uh, again, U.S. partners, the major oil producers in the GCC to increase production and sort of um, help out as the prices have increased. And we know that's one main reason for the Biden administration's outreach to Riyadh. Talk about uh, all of that, how this war has impacted U.S., GCC relations and also Russia GCC relations and if you see any sort of shift in uh, alliances or the uh, closeness of these uh, major powers in the region towards the West meaning the US and also the East which is Russia in this case. Over the years, as the world has become more multipolar, GCC states have been shifting their foreign policies to adapt to these new geopolitical realities. When um, Russia intervened militarily in Syria back in 2015, that forced GCC countries to begin looking at Moscow differently. And as US influence in the region has been declining, GCC states have been trying to diversify their alliances and partnerships to become more autonomous from Washington. And within this context, they have all six GCC states to, to varying degrees have tried to strengthen their relationships with Russia. So when the Russians invaded Ukraine in February and what resulted was increased east-west bifurcation and pressure from Washington that it began putting on its allies and partners around the world to unify against Vladimir Putin's government, the GCC states were put in a rather difficult position. Quite frankly, there is no support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine from Arab governments with the exception of Syria. At the same time, there's no desire to really condemn um, or single out Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. Countries like Saudi Arabia, and the UAE wants to continue having close relations with Moscow even after the dust settles in Ukraine at some point. They don't want to take actions right now that could jeopardize their good relations with Russia. 
The problem, though, is that the U.S. is putting pressure on them to do just that. And this is pressure that these countries do not welcome. They want to continue being close to the U.S. After all, they count on the United States as their security guarantor, but they don't see it in their interest to join any global campaign aimed at squeezing or humiliating Russia. So there's a very delicate balance that they've been striking as the conflict in Ukraine uh, continues to rage on. They have lost a lot of confidence in the U.S. and they are also very upset with many aspects of U.S. foreign policy. And so in my opinion, they have responded to the conflict in Ukraine in a way that sends a very clear message to Washington that they are unhappy and that they're not going to just take orders from Washington and that they're going to invest in their relationships with countries that are rivals, or maybe we can even say enemies of the United States, such as Russia. They don't think that aligning uh, closely with NATO countries against Moscow would serve their interests. And they're making it very clear to the United States that they're going to pursue their own interests even if those interests do not align with those of Western countries. And uh, Giorgio, one final question, because this is very much an issue, especially here in U.S. media, when you see U.S. outreach to Saudi Arabia and specifically President Biden, between President Biden and Mohammed bin Salman, and that's the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the former Washington Post columnist, Saudi journalist who was a U.S. resident just here outside of Washington, D.C. and killed in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. How much do you think that issue is going to impact? Because for some time, there was this expectation that Saudi Arabia and specifically MBS would be considered a pariah and at least with a democratic president in Washington, we wouldn't see this kind of outreach. But I guess the Russia... Uh, Ukraine situation has changed that. How much do you think the killing of Jamal Khashoggi is still alive and a significant issue when it comes to this direct outreach between Washington and Riyadh and specifically between President Biden and Mohammed bin Salman? Well, I think from Biden's perspective, it makes things difficult and it makes things super awkward. You know, when he was running for president in 2019, he was taking part in a debate with his fellow Democratic presidential hopefuls, and he addressed the killing of Hashoji as well as the conflict in Yemen by saying that if elected president, he would turn Saudi Arabia into a pariah. Mm -hmm. No one who has any understanding of the U.S.-Saudi relationship or any understanding of Joe Biden's track record on foreign policy issues took that seriously. He was speaking to a room of Democrats, and because of the extent to which Saudi Arabia, chiefly Mohammed bin Salman himself, grew close to Trump, there were these partisan dynamics which made bashing Saudi Arabia something that sat well with Democratic voters who ultimately make up Joe Biden's base. So when candidates run for president, they say a lot of things to get votes and to fire up their base. Then when they actually become president, that's when the real politique kicks in and presidents have to make decisions based on, uh, you know, considering practicalities and the realities of leading U.S. foreign policy. Obviously, the United States, with Biden at the helm, views Saudi Arabia as a very important partner for the United States. When it comes to many issues in the region, the U.S. and the Saudis work together very closely uh, when it comes to countering Iran's foreign policy, you know, Washington and Riyadh see eye to eye in, in many ways. Now that we all know that Mohammed bin Salman is set to become the next king of Saudi Arabia, it's clear that any government in the world that wants to have a relationship with Saudi Arabia, and obviously the U.S. does, is going to have to deal with Mohammed bin Salman. And this, you know, is the context that we're in right now uh, as we're reading about this diplomatic heavy lifting that took place to set up a presidential meeting between Biden and Mohammed bin Salman. Um, it 
you know, I, I, I think it's difficult for Biden. He made that pledge in 2019 about to make Saudi Arabia a pariah. And now that he's the president, I mean, he has to do the opposite. He has to go to Saudi Arabia and show respect to Mohammed bin Salman and, and turn a new page. I think many human rights groups in the U.S. find it outrageous. Many elements within the Democratic Party think that Biden is compromising his values, compromising his principles. But again, as I said, back in 2019, when Biden made that pariah comment, everyone who was being realistic knew that Joe Biden was never going to make Saudi Arabia a pariah. And when he goes to Saudi Arabia this month, that should end any any thinking that those campaign words were in any way connected to what he was going to actually do once in the Oval Office. Mm -hmm. And you're right. We're hearing a lot of criticism from various human rights groups, not only to the administration's out recent outreach to Saudi Arabia, but also in general, um, the difference between the campaign slogans and the actual policies when it comes to f centering human rights and celebrating the supporters of human rights and condemning the abusers. In fact, as you and I were speaking, it's Friday today, there was a live event by Human Rights Watch, the major human rights organization, uh, discussing this very issue, U.S. President Biden as a trip, possible trip to Saudi Arabia and its implications. Well, on that note, Giorgio, I want to thank you so much for joining the Iran podcast. It was a very interesting conversation. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for having me on your program. That was Giorgio Cafiero, the CEO of Gulf State Analytics and an adjunct fellow at the American Security Project. And thank you for tuning in to the Iran podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and rate and review us. You can also support our work by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran podcast and clicking on support. Iran podcast is produced by Joshua Barlow. Our theme music is by 127 Band and our logo art is by Mina Jaffari. You can follow us on Twitter at Iran podcast. We'll be back next week. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.